Hello and welcome to Florida Basketball Hour. I am Neil Blackman, Saturday Down South. I am going to be joined by Graham Hall of the Gainesville Sun on this week's show. Eric Fawcett is out until uh, after the Ole Miss game Sunday, so uh, no Eric today, but do have Graham Hall, the beat writer, Florida basketball beat writer from the Gainesville Sun. Uh, it's always good to get Graham on, so we'll get Graham here in a minute. Florida does escape Missouri with a 66-65 victory. Uh, kind of a crazy game. Um, Florida did not really lead much at all in the second half. In fact, Missouri led for 16 and a half minutes in the second half before Florida was able to come back uh, late and win the game largely on the back of Tyree Appleby, who um, just really took over down the stretch for, for lack of uh, any deeper analysis. Uh, Appleby, was just marvelous. Florida rallied from nine points down at the eight minute mark. Uh, and then Tyree Appleby, who scored all 17 of his points in the second half, hit 10 of 10 from the free throw line. Uh, eight of his 10 free throws that he made came in the last eight minutes, which is pretty remarkable, including the game winning free throw uh, with eight seconds to go, which was a, a really nice set by Florida. They spaced the floor. Um, for Appleby to, to penetrate. And it was a drive with a cook option and a duck down option. Um, and I think even if Appleby had not been fouled, uh, that the duck in would have been there. Now that said, you know, Florida was missing bunnies at the rim quite frequently, but you know, I do think Anthony Dirigi was in position to put the ball in the hoop. So Florida probably gets points that way regardless, but, you know, no guarantees in any event, um, Missouri fouls and Appleby hits two free throws. Then after uh, a Missouri timeout, um, Missouri comes down to the other end, can't get anything off. Uh, and then they do get a corner three that they tried, uh, at the buzzer. It is no good. Uh, and Florida escapes with the victory. Florida, again, playing without Colin Castleton, again, playing without Jason Totobo, which will be uh, the whole season. Huge contributions from two on Gatkick and from uh, the always, the suddenly emergent Niles Lane, who um, has just really given Florida a lift defensively. Look, I think, and I'll talk to Graham about this in just a minute uh, when we welcome him in. I mean, I think the biggest thing with with Florida is they've decided that defense has to be their identity. Uh, they hold Missouri to under a point of possession, um, which you'd expect them to do, but uh, you know, Florida really has to, to live on that side of the floor because they're going to struggle to score baskets in, in the half court. They're going to take high volume threes without bigs, uh, not get a ton of stuff in the paint. So that's kind of where it was for, the mighty Gators in terms of, um, you know, how they got back into this game, they get back into the game with their defense. How do they win the game? They win the game with Tyree Appleby. So uh, without any, I guess, further ado, we'll welcome in Graham Hall. Graham, uh, no Eric today. So, you know, you and I get to hold down the fort. It's good to have you. It's good to be here, man. Thanks for having me. You know, that game I missed, it's probably the least I've watched of a Florida basketball game this year, just with it being on signing day at, at, at three o'clock in the middle of the day. I think a lot of people were not tuned in and 
I made a comment to Mike after the game saying, Hey, it wasn't really a, a hostile road environment. And he, you know, checked himself there and said, no, there, there were still some loud students there for that game. I mean, that's a tough place to play regardless of who's in the stands, but I got to say, I missed most of that one. So I'm, I'm going to let you break it down more than me for this one. Yeah, no, it was more of a, um, you know, I think Missouri students are obviously on campus. Um, what else are you going to do in a blizzard? Right. So they all, they all uh, right. head to the arena and their student section was full to the point where I guess at one point, uh, Anthony Jordan, who was the lead ref warned the Missouri student section because they were saying stuff to Mike White. And I think Mike has had enough of uh, opposing student sections and, and other people uh, this season. So yeah, it's interesting, like not a huge crowd, obviously, because, of the blizzard, uh, but a full student section. So it would sort of be like that, those November midweek games in Gainesville where it's the, the rowdies are full, but you know, it's sparsely filled elsewhere. Uh, it had a little bit of that feel, um, but definitely louder down the stretch. Uh, right. I will say yeah. one thing I was stunned at Graham and, you know, I know you don't really have to have watched much of the Missouri game to know this is, I was very surprised at Kwanzaa Martin's decision to defend for 94 feet um, repeatedly down the stretch. Like it just seems to me that if you're playing this Florida team, uh, why not do what Ole Miss did last time? And we'll talk about Ole Miss um, and just make Florida score in the half court. Like why would you ever let Tyree Appleby blow by your defenders? Right. Florida wants to get out in transition. Now, I don't think they're great at finishing in transition. Those are two separate things, but this is an offense that likes to, to beat the press down the floor, especially when you got Tyree Appleby, who, yeah, I know a lot of people talk about the negative, the erraticness, as if it's always going to result in a negative play, but how quick he is off the dribble, I mean, there are a few guys that can stay in front of him for, like you said, 94 feet. So to do that for not even just 30 minutes, but 38, 39 minutes against this Florida team, I mean, that's an interesting decision. But Quanzo Martin is a guy who is regarded as this great defensive mind, in a sense. I mean, he gets his teams playing hard on the defensive end every single year. But sometimes you outthink yourself. And right. You forget that this is a team who has a sophomore forward in six foot nine, Swang Fat Gat Kick playing, you know, as the tallest player. So this team is going to attempt to get out and transition, beat you down the floor, and get some easy baskets, especially around the rim, when they cannot really have to have these crazy contested shots every single time. That, that's kind of interesting to me. You're, you want to slow Florida down in the half court, especially. Um, that, that I'm sure that Martin regrets that. Let's say that. <laughs> yeah, I mean, it, it just uh, it quite literally cost them the game. They uh, allowed Florida a couple times because Appleby's so quick and just to play catch up, their, their guards fouled trying to get back behind him. Um, and as a result, Florida stopped the clock which was bad for Missouri and then sent a great free throw shooter to the line. And fortunately for the Gators, Tyree 
hit all 10 of his free throws. Like I just said uh, before you were on, Appleby scored all 17 of his points in the second half. Um, I know people are frustrated with, with the turnovers, but when you're the only player on your team that really creates, uh, your turnovers are going to go up a little bit because you're going to take some more chances. And, you know, I would, I don't know how nuts anyone really is on assist to turnover ratio. Right. But uh, I would say the Tyrese is still 1.5 to one, which while not fabulous uh, is certainly not that bad. Uh, so, you know, averaging four and a half assists per game, definitely better than the two and a half turnovers he's averaging. Especially considering, yeah, his usage. I mean, having a high usage rate combined with a, a, a rotational role, I guess you could say, that seems to differ from week to week as Florida tries to find answers in the backcourt to remain consistent like that across the board, I think personally is very impressive. And then, yeah, yeah, you mentioned the free throw shooting. I mean, I asked Mike after the first game, and I still mention this because I do still feel a little bit bad about it. I think they went 16 to 28 against Elon from the free throw line, if I remember correctly. And then, you know, that that's going to lose you some games some nights. And let's be honest, it did lose Florida some games some nights. The Alabama game, I think you could say that that would have been a lot closer down the stretch there. LSU, certainly, I think they went 11 to 22. I mean, that's that's going to lose you some games. Let me just say that. And the other night where Florida took, what, 40 free throws in that game? I think they had more than 40 free throws. A lot. Insane. <laughs> 20, 26, but still. It was a I, lot. You know, and Yeah, 40 in the prior game. the game before. So, yeah. Who, who, yeah. I, it escapes me now. Which no, is, you had it. You know, if yeah. I'm the opposing right. coach, I'm frustrated one at that statistic. But to hit what I think they hit 34 of 40 that game, that's incredibly impressive, way more than they were doing just a couple of weeks earlier. So to win games at the free throw line, and then that's a positive attribute you have to mention with Tyree Appleby. While this team was still struggling, he hit 40 in a row earlier this season in non-conference play. I mean, he's shooting at an 86% clip, I think, right now. So there is a lot that he brings to this team. The ability to create your own shot off the dribble and then go down and knock the free throws down is is huge for this team that really doesn't have a whole lot of guys that cre- can create their own shot right now. And that's that's kind of harsh to say, but it's really the reality right now. Yeah, it was funny. I was talking to a staff member um, earlier in the week and we were laughing because Florida's offensive efficiency numbers keep creeping up. And you know, they still struggle to score in the half court. And he's like, well, well, we've shot over 60 free throws in the last two games, you know, and there's no better uh, medicine for your offensive efficiency numbers than shooting a lot of free throws and making a lot of free throws. And so that's what Florida has done the last two games. And I really think that's going to be key until they get Colin Castleton back is, is getting to the foul line at a high rate, um, which it's impressive that they've been able to do without Colin who was second in the SEC and fouls drawn when he went out. Um, and fortunately for the Gators, shooting free throws a lot better than he did a season ago. Uh, so, you know, definitely good news there. What's been fascinating is that while their offensive efficiency numbers creep up, it's like the staff member told me they really have sold out to being a defensive identity team, which is why a guy like Niles Lane has played 40 minutes in the last two games he only has 77 still on the season. 
So gives you an idea of, uh, you know, what they're, they're seeing with Niles. They know they've got to get stops to win. They have to be scrappy kind of lunch pail team. Um, and it's cut into Brandon McKissick's minutes primarily uh, the most because Lane is a perimeter defender who kind of slots into McKissick's position. Yeah, McKissick is clearly a guy right now who I think is searching for some things. He has a way to put it and has also just dealt with a lot of frustration, taking some shots, has had his role alter as well. And so that's someone who I think you still have not seen him play at the highest level that you will see this season. But as for Niles Lane and, and Neil, you can, you know, testify to a lot of this stuff. There's so much that goes on behind the scenes. No one from Mike White to anyone on the roster ever doubted Niles Lane's defensive capability. That has not changed. And the offensive game, I, I hear from people, they continue to see him make strides behind the scenes. And they, there's belief that that will improve. But this is a guy who, like you said, plays, has a very similar skill set to a graduate transfer that they brought in who has a relationship with Tyree Appleby and for all McKissick is struggling with right now is a better offensive player by far right now. So when you're a guy who re-bought into the program, stayed here for summer A and B and worked on your jump shot and shot a thousand shots a day and got in better shape, and then to see a five-week, six-week stretch where you don't really have a defined role, to come in right now in the middle of SEC play and do that, that just really doesn't make a whole lot of sense to me and leaves a lot of coaches scratching their head about how that's possible. But, but that's what you're dealing with when you're talking about these sophomore guys. And so what you've gotten out of Niles Lane is incredibly valuable, but it's a little bit unpredictable because if anything, you would have thought that he either would have been a more valuable contributor sooner or just continue to ride the bench with Florida not really having any backcourt injuries. But that's what some of these offensive struggles have allowed for right now. Yeah, I mean, you're right. And so I guess there's sort of two ways to look at it. Like, you know, where was Niles Lane? Why wasn't he playing? Um, if you're kind of glass half empty uh, or if you're glass half full, maybe, oh, man, good thing that the coaches decided they really had to pin their identity as a basketball team to, to defense and put him in now. Because, I mean, even against Missouri, Florida was 0.3 uh, points per possession better almost 0.3, 0.27 points per possession better per hoop lens with Lane on the floor. Um, and that's in a game where Lane finished with a minus two and the plus minus, but you know, in a one point game, that's basically breaking even. Um, and that was in his 18 minutes compared to a McKissick who uh, was minus three, which was the second lowest number on the team. Khaleesi Reeves, not really built for that kind of uh, dog fight, rock fight of a game. Um, he had for the first time all season, Kwesi has been one of the guys with the highest plus minus throughout the year. Uh, he had the lowest, uh, at minus seven against Missouri. And it probably was his defense, uh, that limited his minutes. Florida's going to need him, uh, offensively, I think down the stretch. So I don't put much stock into his minutes decreasing in, in one game, but it will be interesting to see how the minutes that Lane gets, are distributed uh, because they were all McKissick and, and Reeves minutes uh, going back to when Lane wasn't playing. Yeah. I, I think that team defense with, with, with Kowasi is, 
you know, Quasi is just, that's such a difficult concept for a freshman to master that I don't really know where our expectations even should be in a sense. I know that what you just said, if you have a defensive identity, how can you justify, you know, backcourt heavy veteran laden team like this? How can you justify putting a freshman out there? That's kind of what coaches are juggling across the country. You have players who are ranked within the top 50 and you want to keep signing players like that, but you also want to put yourself night in and night out in the most competitive area. So do you live with the defensive miscues, the lack of confidence, the fatigue, whatever you want to call it, the freshmen are going to go through at some point in the season? Or do you put out your most competitive lineup on the floor every single night? And the latter may be very short-term focused because you're talking about driving away potential recruits. And when you're a place like Florida who wants to sign kids from IMG Academy and the villages and all these other prep schools that are right here in your backyard, Monteverde Academy, I mean, can you do that? You have to play these freshmen through the struggles while also having a balance with the veterans. And I think that there's a lot of people who I, I, I think miss that in a sense. It's not like yeah. the freshman is always playing at the highest level capable or that there may not be someone behind them who's a fifth-year guy, fourth-year guy, or even a sophomore that is capable of doing some things, you know, if not better than that freshman, especially, like what we just mentioned, if your identity is on the other end of the court. So that is the balance right now with the transfer portal and wanting to compete on the recruiting trail for the other nine months out of the year for these top 50 players like Reeves and, and Malik and, and uh, Reed. I mean, you name it, Florida's going to have to keep playing yeah. freshmen through the struggles and that's where they're at right now. Yeah. A chance that they'll have three, if Judah Mintz goes to Florida, a chance they'll have three top 50 players in the class, which would make it pretty close to a top 10 class. I think, um, I think I I've done the composite. It's like 11th or 12th. If you add him, um, but it's going to be interesting next year because Man. they they really are going to be in a position where they have to play a lot of freshmen, just like they did the year that they had Nimard and Keontae and Locke starting by January. Um, I guess, and it's so funny that Keontae was the last of those guys to start. But, um, you know, yeah, I mean, you really have to just sort of live with what happens defensively if you start freshmen um, and hope that they pick it up. And I think Reeves' improvement on defense, to his credit, is why his minutes went up some. It's just going to be tough with a great on-ball defender like Niles Lane. He's going to lose a little bit of minutes because they want Niles on the floor uh, to get stops. Obviously, they give up a ton when they take Reeves out and put Lane in uh, offensively. It's going to be interesting. Uh, speaking of Florida recruits, real quick, Graham, Malik Renau, uh had 18 points and five rebounds in a top-10 national matchup last night. Um to help Montverde beat Bergen Catholic, uh, an old New Jersey power. He was nine of 11 from the field in that game. Uh, and Denzel Aberdeen, who, who is the one player that isn't in the top 100 in Florida's class, had 26 points and three assists in the third place game of that tournament um, with Montverde against uh, Luai, Long Island Lutheran, uh, which I, my school that I coached, uh, has played Luai almost every year and I can tell you they're good. So if you're 26 and three against them with five rebounds, you're doing 
you're doing work. So lots to be excited about coming in uh, for Florida. But as you said, a lot of growing pains. Um, another area, Graham, where they're going to have growing pains, I think, and we I mentioned it earlier, is still offensively, uh, just how they score in the half court uh, without Colin Castleton. Right now they're they're shooting 33s a game, and it's kind of by necessity. Yeah, the half court offense is just I I cringe a lot of the times, and and I know that 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 Mike is not loving it either necessarily, but when you know, Anthony DeRuji is, is still very, very young to the game. And I think, and this is not an insult whatsoever, but most of what he does well is predicated on his athleticism. Um, I mean, and he's, he's tremendously improved as an outside shooter. But now you need him, who I think at one point in the season was shooting at the highest percentage from three. You now need him to man the block, which that that's not really going to work out. And I know this uh, – this, this offense has a lot of five out elements and, and they're not going away from that. And he's fantastic. I think in a, in a lot of ways, but I don't think he's a great screener and I don't think he's a great passer, especially at the top of the arc. And so running the five out and having him in the low post is just not going to work. He's just more of a traditional stretch four, in my mind. So you are really going to have to lie, rely, I think a lot on gat kick or CJ Felder, if you want to generate, offense around the rim and that that I think has a pretty low ceiling right now if some of these guys like Flan Fleming or Brandon McKissick or even CJ Felder were better at cutting to the basket and finishing around the rim I I would think that you could run this high screen dribble handoff offense with one of them and and get them some good looks around the rim but they just haven't really shown a skill set to make you want to buy in on that. Does that make a lot of sense? I, I think it does. The thing about Fleming is that I think he's really good when he gets downhill and goes to the basket, but he seems hesitant. Like he'll get into the lane and he'll almost back down a defender, um, almost like he's posting up as right. opposed to just attacking the 10. And I really think with his body and length, he should just be attacking the rim. Um, you know, make them stop you sort of, uh, Brandon McKissick has been better at that, but hasn't finished some buckets lately. It's I think number one and number two. And I know I just talked about his defense, but I know Kwesi's dad would just would, uh, would agree with me one and two on what Wasey needs to work on in the off season is dude, you're six, seven, and you have like a seven foot wingspan, like learn to drive. Uh, because you're just going to be a monster when you figure that out. He needs yep. to get better at attack at attacking closeouts. So you're right. I mean, that's and that's why we get back to Tyree Appleby has to take these chances because when they're in five out, they can't really exploit matchups very much because they're small. Um, so it's pretty easy to switch against Florida, and then they don't have a ton of guys that are willing to drive. So Mike. I think very similar actually to the year with Nimhard Johnson and Locke as freshmen and maybe something to ask at media availability is, you know, they're really set oriented and need to be, um, you know, they're running more sets than they've run since that season because they have to, they have to find ways to get shooters open. They did run one set against Missouri that they hadn't run all year. Um, and it was a little, floppy set you see it a lot in the nba where 
you get a shooter under the basket and they have the option to come off uh, either a stagger screen on the block or a single screen on the opposite block. Um, and so they, they go the direction of either one of two screen screens uh, and Florida did it really beautifully uh, a few times for Myron Jones, who I think is so much better shooting off a screen than he is off the dribble. Um, that was good to see. They had one that Niles Lamb has called for an absolutely nonsensical moving screen when, you know, I guess if you light the guy up and your feet move, uh, you're moving, but just a really set oriented offense right now with, without Colin Castleton and Jason Jatobo. With Niles, I got to ask you, because I, I missed some of this, but was that where Florida decided to challenge? No, that, the, that wasn't Niles. The challenge was um, on a hook and hold. And I actually thought Niles okay. kind of got the, he kind of got the short end of that too. I know that Eric Pastrana yep. and, and Mike were talking to him and just saying, Hey, you like, you can't react at all because they're looking for a reason not to, uh, affect the game, but there was a clear hook and hold on him and Niles kind of threw the guy off of him a little bit and maybe was a little aggressive about it, maybe, but they called a uh, technical on Niles and then the hook and hold technical on Missouri. So they canceled each other out. Um, and I think, got it. you know, it was, it was interesting. Things can get chippy when you play Missouri because they're such a bruising, like that's Quanto Martin basketball is like, we're going to play big physical and, and hard-nosed defense, uh, you know, but yeah, that was the moment of that game. So I did like the floppy sets. I hope that they continue to run those. Um, I love the fact that they got a game from Byron Jones where he was five of eight from deep. Um, I hope his ankle is okay. Looked like he rolled it a little bit. Uh, so I don't even know if he's practicing. That would be one concern. Yeah, absolutely. You know, we'll find out here a little bit later here when they get out of practice if uh, how he's doing now that we're recording this um, Friday yeah. afternoon here. But, you know, talking about Myron Jones, that's it's a great observation. Just it's a, and I hate to even use the term simple because it is a great observation. But just to say that he's better at shooting off of a screen when you can get his defender away from him, I just think it's so much better for him when you look at his shot form and I'm no expert whatsoever, but it just looks like he has an extremely low gather, very inside. His elbows are, are tucked in well, but his gather is low. And I would think that when you're shooting over a guy, it's going to be a less efficient shot than when you can create space and get a clean look from the corner or at, at the top of the arc off of a screen. I think that just his shooting form, you're going to want to run things that are going to get him an open shot rather than off the screen. And, and I guess the question is why did it, it take this long for, to find that answer in a sense? And uh, you know, that, that's a good question. I, I, I think a lot of, you know, Mike White uses the term, a lot of this is trial and error a lot of the time. And I think that when you look at Myron Jones's looks at Penn state, yeah, a lot of it was, coming off of screens, but they ran an offense where he really was able to take a step and shoot step backs, I think at a higher rate than what you've seen right now. I, I don't think he's generating as much space on his, on his pull-up dribble than they thought that he would be able to generate. And, and maybe that's just me looking at these 
top-down highlights, but I'm curious to think what you what you think about how he is being used until now. Yeah, I mean, look, he's shooting 9% under his um, collegiate average from deep, uh, and I don't think they've run him off screens as much uh, as Penn State. I don't have the synergy numbers, and unfortunately I use hoop lens and it doesn't track that. Uh, so I can only say what I've seen like kind of eyeball test, but you know, the eye test is, is that they haven't run him off as many screens as he was getting looks at Penn state. And so uh, that has certainly something to do with it. And I also agree that, you know, he is kind of a low gather uh, three point shooter, but he also doesn't have the twitch of say Jalen Hudson, who is another guy with a low gather. Um, so it's, it's like, he's not going to, take you off the bounce and then create his own space like Jalen could do somewhat. Um, you know, he's going to, uh, he, he's going to need his, his space to be created for him. Um, and so Florida does that with these floppy sets. They're going to have to figure out how to do it against the one, three, one, uh, and junk zones this weekend with Ole Miss second time, uh, around against the rebels what I'll say about that is that uh, Kermit Davis, because he's such a, a kind of defensive mastermind, um, his teams can be difficult to play the second time around. You remember a couple of years ago in the COVID season, they just absolutely smashed Florida uh, the second time around. It was one of those games that really riled up the hive because uh, Florida, I think, had just gotten back into the top 25 and um, just got bombed at Ole Miss. Uh, but maybe Florida, with revenge on their mind, uh, plays a little better. You you can't play any worse than the Gators did the first time they played Ole Miss. Yeah, you know, letting those the backcourt go get forty on you, I think, was I mean, pretty miserable. Especially, I think one of those guys, a freshman. I mean, Kermit Davis. I say this to people all the time that there's nothing wrong with Mike White guys like Kermit Davis being in the bottom half of SEC coaches, because that's just how good the league is. I mean, to be a complete coach, to compete in this league, you need a complete coach. And not everyone, I think, is there right now. There are defensive-minded coaches and, and offensive geniuses, and you're going to face a tough test every single night. I mean, Kermit Davis may not be a top-10 coach in this, in this league, and there's nothing wrong with that. But in now, what, his fourth season? Up there at Oxford, I mean, he has, just like what Florida's establishing, a defensive-minded identity. The one through one I don't think you're going to see as much of that. I don't think Florida was expecting to see as much of that initially as they did because I think that – I think I guess the way to put this is I think that Mike White would have been able to game plan for that a little bit better because of how first he is in employing the one through one especially mid-game, so you'd think that they would have been able to take a, a timeout. But maybe these guys have not – practiced against the one three one as much because you are see it you're you're seeing it decline, right? I mean I think you could say that its usage is, is declining yeah a lot right yeah. now. Not as much as the as the full court press, but it's definitely declining when it comes to techniques, but genius of Kermit Davis to employ that. That's one of those things where I, I think you have this appreciation too, even through fandom, whatever you want to call it, even through the lens of the Florida Gators, you're still with your basketball mind able to sit back and be like dang what a genius move by Ole Miss to do that you're you're, yeah. you're less angered at that and more just impressed by the 
the chess move in a sense to to beat beat Mike White what he loves to do offensively with kind of a defense that he loved not too long ago. Yeah, I think two keys to this game. Um, you know how to sort of react. Well, three keys. First, how to sort of react to what Kermit Davis decides to do defensively because he's going to do something different than the first game. I don't. And the second one, uh, I would say, you know, is guard play. Uh, as you mentioned, Ole Miss's guards really lit Florida up in the first game. Now, the big difference, of course, is that the McDonald's All-American, uh, Deshaun Ruffin, who was really coming into his own um, and hit 21 points and six assists against Florida, uh, and then uh, 10 points and two assists against Arkansas, and then 17 and three against Kansas State, and then 19 and four, three against uh, LSU in a stretch that Ole Miss went three and one. So the McDonald's All-American Deshaun Ruffin was really elevating the Rebels offensively, and unfortunately he uh, tore his ACL um, in the LSU game. So he is out for the season, which means now that really Ole Miss is missing three starters because – Darkel Joyner probably still out, according to Davis today. Um, Ruffin out, and then Robert Allen, their best defender, uh, also out. Um, so they're going to be – it'll be interesting to see what Ole Miss does on offense. They're very ball screen dominant anyway, but now they don't really have a point guard. Yeah, I don't think anyone is – no one out there roots for injuries unless you're a deplorable person. But, I mean, I think that when you look at Florida's – Injury woes right now, you know, it's hard for any other team out there to say against Florida that, that they are shorthanded. I mean, you're talking about back-to-back two all-SEC players sitting on your bench right now, as well as Jason Jatobo, who got poked in the eye and then booed about it. I mean, this is a situation where, you know, no one's feeling sorry for Florida. And the reverse of that is they're not feeling sorry for anyone, especially a team that handed them a 16-point loss in a, a place that Mike White spent, what, 12 years? I <laughs> yeah. mean, I don't think anyone is feeling bad for them whatsoever. And Florida's not going to feel bad for Ole Miss, you know, for losing their third big player coming into Gainesville now. That's just going to be a huge test. It's going to be up to Davis, like I said, to find some defensive answers for this Florida team. you got to slow them down in the full court. I think the zone works extremely well against Florida. Maybe that's kind of an insult, but I, I think that zones are working pretty well right now against them. So I don't understand why any team would waste the energy in trying to slow this team down in the full court. So it's going to be a good one. Absolutely. But if they can find Ole Miss, if they can find some, some easy touches in the low post and, and win the rebounding battle, Florida's still going to be in some trouble here. So they're going to have to shoot at a high percentage. And, and Neil, maybe you've seen this stat too, but it's got to be baffling to staff members that Florida teams know Florida's going to shoot it from outside and they lose their top two front court options. And all of a sudden now are able to knock down double digit three point attempts for the first time all season. I mean, I don't think we <laughs> saw that at any point. And now it's 11, 10, 10, 10. I mean, they didn't have a game where they had made over seven I think until SEC play, that's just not what I think anyone expected with guys like Myron Jones and Tyree Appleby, who's gotten a much, much more improved at not only his step back, his his shooting in the corner too, but it's taken leaps everywhere, I think, from in terms of his outside shooting. So 
I didn't think anyone would see this type of shooting uptick coming when you lose guys who are going to give you a different look on offense, if that makes sense. But somehow Florida is doing it, which, again, begs the question and, and why we kind of all do this. Why? Why is it happening now? And, and yeah. how is it happening now? Yeah, it's a great question. Ole Miss also defends the three-point line extremely well, 28th. Uh, in the country and limiting three-point attempts against. Uh, but, again, so much of that uh, driven by some of the players that they don't have, whether it's Jarkel Joyner or or now Deshaun Ruffin being out and a, a guy who could go toe-to-toe with Appleby, who we saw go toe-to-toe with Appleby um, in terms of speed and quickness and, and uh, you know, playmaking ability. Certainly Florida didn't have any answers for him in the second half. The good news for Florida is that they did hold Ole Miss to 22 points in the first half in Oxford. So they know that they can slow them down and it's going to be Ole Miss's first full game playing without Ruffin, who was hurt late in the second half against LSU. Uh, and Ole Miss just kind of held on to win the game with Ty Fagan as their primary ball handler, the Georgia transfer. Um, and then, Matthew Morrell, a guy Florida recruited as a secondary ball handler. Uh, you mentioned rebounding. I think that's the other key to the game, obviously, just what can Florida get from the front court at all. Uh, I'm told C.J. Felder is finally 100%. That took a while. Um, you know, I don't know. He must have had a real nasty flu. Uh, but I certainly think you see more C.J. Felder because it's required uh, to deal with Nizier Brooks, who was a real problem for the Gators the first time, the big seven-footer. Kind of toss two on gap kick around like a rag doll. Yeah, you know, I, I feel bad for for Tune because what he's trying to do. I mean, he's got what one seventy five at six foot nine. That is just, you know, he's probably <laughs> right. been hurting at several times this season, taking some shots in the ribs. I mean, the way that they're also calling the game differently right now, where. I think that you're going to start to see the physicality increase in the college game, kind of the way that it is in the NFL right now, NBA right now, excuse me, where they're not calling guys so much for a lot of the elbows and and the hooks that you would normally see them call right now, how you're seeing the game change and be called. and, And maybe you disagree with this, but guys are getting away with a lot more steps than they have gotten away with in the past. That's that's obviously part of refs wanting to incorporate the Euro step into the game and just make it a more appealing product to watch at home. And when you have a guy like Toon Gatkin who can play in the low post and you got Reed coming in and Malik, a bunch of guys who are going to be six foot nine and theoretically should be able to put the ball on the floor, that is going the game, the way the game is moving is only going to increase in that direction the advantage for guys like that, if that makes sense. You have guys who can put the ball on the floor and get away with a lot of physicality in the low post, and they're not going to hear as many whistles for either that they would have heard five years ago. So the big thing for Gak moving forward is to make sure that he puts on the weight where he can bang in the low post, kind of like what Keontae Johnson did, but still be an effective dribble drive guy who can get to the line and, and make, you know, get opponents off their feet and, and beat you to the basket. That That's where he's got to improve. The fact that he's even playing right now, I, I got to, you know, I'm ranting, but the fact that he's even playing right now, I think is incredibly impressive. I mean, you know, that's a very late addition. They didn't know whether he would really qualify for this year, not to 
you know, just some things there. Found out in the, I think the week before training camp or a couple weeks before that he would actually qualify and be in and then got here. And there was a lot of talk about redshirting him, but with the transfer portal, with recruiting, can anyone right now justify bringing a guy in on scholarship and redshirting them in this year where you can go out there and, and get anyone who can come in and help you depth wise? The fact that Gatkig went from a guy that they were talking about redshirting to now be in Florida's potentially best option from a rebounding perspective because of his length, I just think that's crazy. But the conversation has changed about Gatkig because of the role he's in. But we have to remember that nine months ago, this was someone who was here in redshirt, redshirt, weight room, focus, learn. And now it's, hey, listen, can you play 25 minutes a night? Can you go out there and bang with some of these SEC guys in the low post and keep learning everything else. And that's a huge assignment for someone to undertake in nine months. And the fact that he's doing it is incredibly impressive, but the conversation has changed about his expectation because of where Florida's at. Yeah, it really has. And he's going to need to be good Saturday. Um, you know, they offered him the scholarship late too. It was a, a late offer because Sam Resensev didn't decide to leave the program until pretty late. Um, so you know, um, yeah, I mean, at first Sam Rosensev was stuck in Russia and then all of a sudden he wasn't, he was deciding to go pro. Um, I think he was stuck yep. negotiating his, his contract. Uh, but uh, in any event, uh, I don't think that they really anticipated playing their third string big. Nobody really expects to play their third string center um, <laughs> at the beginning of a season, but that's where Florida is right now. Uh, Ole Miss is, as you said, isn't going to feel sorry for Florida. Florida's not going to feel sorry for Ole Miss. Um, the Gators were outscored by 20 points in the paint in the first meeting, lost by 16. So clearly Florida has to do a better job uh, on the low block. And I think it's going to be a bigger focus for Ole Miss in the absence of Deshaun Ruffin, um, who scored so many points driving the lane. Um, you know, they, they're going to go down, down low, whether they post – uh, and, and I think because Florida's so small, they can post a guy like Jamin Brakefield, who's 6'8". Uh, they can post a guy who's 6'5", 200, like Austin Crowley. Um, even though he's a ball handler, they can also get him in mismatches and maybe post him a little bit. So I do think they'll, they'll feed the post a little more than they traditionally do um, against Florida. But, you know, I don't know. It, it could be one of these first to 60 win games, Graham. Yeah, you, you reminded me of how ugly that first half was of that Ole Miss game a couple weeks ago. I, I thought I'd blocked it out from my memory, but then when you said 22 in the first half, it all kind of came <laughs> rushing back. Thanks, man. But, yeah, uh, it's. I think it. you know you have two teams right now that are having a defensive-minded identity, and I think both head coaches would be embarrassed if this is a game that ends 80-79 or anything like that. You, you know, this is going to be who can stop the other one who can slow the other one down, who can take them out of what they like to do. And for Florida, like what you said, Florida's going to have to find some way, whether it's making sure that you don't get the wrong guy switched on, on, on in the low post or you double in the low post, whatever it is, Florida's going to have to find some answers in the front court so that they can win that rebounding advantage. Because I, I agree, you're going to see Ole Miss consistently dump it down low and, and attempt to, to generate something and get Florida in early foul trouble. Because if you get CJ Felder and or Toon Gatkick or Anthony DeRuji even with two early fouls, you have to know that 
and I don't mean this as a diss to anyone, but Mike White is kind of in the minority now of people that are quick to sit someone after two fouls in the first half or three in the first four minutes of the second half. And when you have a guy like Anthony Deruji, who is so critical to this team right now, I think there was a game not even two weeks ago where Florida was on the road and Anthony Deruji gets that second foul. I think it was against Ole Miss. And he sits for a long period of time, even though he was the best front court option. That's letting them win in a sense. You're going to have to sometimes gamble that your valuable players are going to be able to play through foul trouble, whether it's three or four in the second half, if they are essential to your lineup. And that's a, that right now, that list includes Anthony Deruji in my mind. So I look for Ole Miss to try and get Florida to get to leave their feet and pick up some some stupid fouls, let's call that, early in the first half because you know what the coach likes to do and you know what the benefits are concerning Florida's roster situation. Yeah, no. And, and when you look at the NCAA tournament, Florida, the first team out this morning in the Joe Lenardi bracketology, um, first team out, uh, it, or first, they're in the, the group of four, first four out in CBS. So kind of floating on the in between the right and the wrong side of the bubble, depending on the day. Uh, right now, one thing they can't do is take a quad three loss um, at home to, to Ole Miss. They've already lost to Ole Miss once. So, you know, we've been saying we're always reluctant on Florida basketball hour to like call certain games must win, but we said Missouri was a must win. I think this another must win for Florida um, and a win that would put them back at 500 in the league. Yeah, absolutely. You look at the upcoming slate after this. I think that a lot of people looked at this three game stretch here coming up and were like, I mean, this is a chance for Florida that has a bottom third strength of schedule ranking pretty much. I think it's what 230th or something like that in, in the net rating and strength of schedule. I mean, and doesn't have a quadrant one victory really yet. I don't think the fact that you combine those factors, I mean, that is not working in Florida's favor. And so long ago, people, especially who I guess were, I don't know if the term is anti-hive, maybe it's, I like to call it team context. They would look and, and look at these losses and say, well, yeah, that's a bad loss, but Florida has three quadrant one victories and they're playing a schedule that ranks 58th and in, in RPI and strength of schedule and, you know, had all these other things to bolster Florida's claim that through the losses, they would still have a case right now. They really don't have that. And you look at having to play Kentucky twice and Auburn come into town when there's apathy within the program. And that sellout is not because of Florida fans. You are, are really looking at a very rough potential three week schedule to end the season when you don't know whether Colin Castleton is going to return or not for those games. So these are must wins in my book as well because of the slate and because of what Florida failed to do through the first 20 games this season. They failed to pick up a quadrant one victory when had when given the chance. They failed to close out that game against LSU despite getting both of those guys in early foul trouble with 14 minutes left in the second half. I mean, those are the missed opportunities that really have you talking about, okay, they don't really have that padding, that assurance. So a lot of these games are must wins. The ones that Florida is favored in, those are all technically must wins in my book, because you're right now absolutely on the cusp because of how you played yourself. 
Yeah, they can't afford to lose to anybody that they're not supposed to at this point. Uh, they have one quad one win against Ohio State. That's it. Uh, so they are good in quadrant two that counts games. Now? Okay. Um, yeah, Ohio State is a quad one. They have a bunch of quad two wins. Not a bunch, but four, I think. Um, and then they'll have five quad – okay, so their quadrant one opportunities remaining are at Kentucky. Uh, good luck. Uh, at Texas A&M um, is still barely a quad one game, but at worst that's going to be a quad two opportunity. Um, then they'll have Auburn at home, quad one, Arkansas at home, quad one, and then Kentucky at home, quad one. So luckily they're in the SEC where they have a bunch of chances to collect quad one wins uh, left. We can say let's assume that Texas A&M game drops to a quad two. That's still a good win if they can get it on the road. Actually, probably a game they need to win with Texas A&M going to be on the bubble with them. Um, but uh, I wouldn't call it a must win on the road, but definitely would help. Look, Florida four and five with Ole Miss and Georgia next can get to six and five before a stretch that is at Kentucky, at Texas A&M, Auburn, and Arkansas. And I think that four game stretch kind of decides whether this team plays in NCAA March Madness or if they play in the NIT. Yeah, and that's how cu- close you're really cutting it. And we have talked in recent years about how the, that final week of the season, you lose three games in a row, you really can play yourself out of it, regardless of what you did through the first four months of the season. So, yeah, it's not favorable for Florida whatsoever. I think that regardless right now, just to and, – and this is kind of funny because I, I think that the committee cares more about winning one – tournament game one one conference tournament game more so than who is the conference champion if you're still fighting yeah yeah in that week isn't that strange you know if you're still fighting in that week heading in yeah you that's the memory it's like they stopped watching you know friday at, at noon if you got one of those wins you're gonna i think really leave a positive impression in a lot of people's mouths and i think that for florida right now they have faltered down the stretch in the way the season has gone. So any chance that you can to steal a victory, go into Texas A&M, steal a victory. I mean, God forbid you go into Rupp Arena and and make everyone mad up there by beating them. That'd be incredible. But, you know, Kentucky dealing with their own injury issues right now. A lot of what I mentioned with balancing playing freshman injuries. I mean, what happened to Ty Ty Washington, Severe Wheeler, a, a week ago, I mean, you don't know necessarily how things are going to go for, for for that game. So if you can go in there and steal one of those games down the stretch, that would be huge for this Florida team. But I don't think anyone can sit here and be like, oh, yeah, I can see that happening right now just because of how unpredictable Florida's really been. Yeah, no, it's going to be tough. I mean, even if Colin comes back, um, not a great matchup with Kentucky. Got to play them twice, like you said. Uh, I think – you know, you're probably circling Texas A&M or circling Arkansas and saying, we really need to win those two games for our NCAA tournament resume. But got to get it done Saturday. Graham, thank you for joining us. Um, tell everybody where they can find you. Hey, this is a lot of fun. I say to you all the time that we got to do this more often. Got to get Eric here. He's one of the best. You know, Yeah, was, no doubt. When I was He's talking usage and free throw percentage, I, I, 
I need him to, you know, he provides the insight that, that I don't have for a lot of that. You guys, I say this all the time. The show is awesome. I listen as much as I can. I always learn something every time I listen. It is a very difficult game to understand. I hear so much from people saying, well, they're just standing around. Or what are we doing? And a lot of that is frustration mixed with a lack of understanding. So I hear from people all right, the time that right. they're looking for ways to learn more about the game. And you guys do that all the time. And I, the Florida Thank fan base you. is lucky to have you both. And anytime I can sit here and talk ball with you guys, I, I come away feeling a little bit smarter. So I, this is awesome all the time. You guys can follow me on Twitter at Graham Hall underscore. You can read me on Gatorsports.com and in the Gainesville Sun. We'll be talking to Mike White later tonight. I'll have some stuff up later from that, whether Myron Jones practiced. I'm going to absolutely use some of the stuff that we talked about here today with, with Ruffin and all that and get some answers before we see that game. And one more thing i got to say. If you're part of the Gator Tip-Off Club or you're interested in joining the Gator Tip-Off Club, I highly recommend it. Every single home game in the SEC, uh, you, you get – a guest speaker. Scott Strickland was a couple weeks ago for the LSU game. Kelly Gray Finley was last weekend. You get a lot of insight and every week an assistant coach speaks to from the Florida men's basketball program speaks. Uh, Keen Misteen's there, Preston Green, always a lot that you can uh, gauge and learn from, from everyone who comes through. So if you're in Gainesville and you care about the Florida basketball program, that's something I highly recommend looking into and you'll get to see me there every single home game. So We'll have to do this again soon, Neil. Always a lot of fun, man. Yeah, man. It's in, I enjoyed it. And uh, yeah, man, ask Mike about the uh, all the sets. You know, did they ever expect <laughs> to be so set reliant? Because yeah, they really are. Uh, they were we'll freewheeling once again. It's we'll deja vu, I think, every year. Don't we talk about in June saying, hey, we're going to be more freewheeling <sighs> open? Yeah. And then unfortunately, someone goes down critical and uh, the game has changed yeah no doubt so thanks Graham and uh, everybody else go Gators and keep attacking closeouts